It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of December 13th, 2015. On tonight's program, we'll hear photographer and author Kevin Eby say, I always saw this as a beautiful work of art. It ended up getting used on the cover of a digestive illness book. (laughs) And comedian Jonathan Katz tells us about his vinyl fetish. I never understood that lyric where it says everybody's getting fat except Mama Cass. I guess it was maybe irony or something like that. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. You know, I was just saying to somebody else, we were talking about uh, TV shows from the 80s, and I always said I could not handle watching The Wonder Years. Remember that show as a kid? Yes. With Fred Savage, because he played, you know, the geeky character named Kevin. And it really annoyed me in life that if you look at pretty much any TV show, any movie with a character named Kevin, he's never the hero, the rugged, manly Kevin that saves the day and you know gets the girl. I mean, he got Winnie for a while, but True. spoiler alert, not at the end of the series. <laughs> but that was the thing. It was like Kevin's always the you know he's the computer geek or he's the you know the the, the sidekick or the comic relief. He's never the the big heroic. Whatever, but Kevin's are cool, and we don't get enough credit. All right, so yeah, our our sponsor for this week's show is Jennifer Owens Kidney, which is you can't get much more unique a sponsor than a bodily organ. It's a first. It's a first, but she is in need of one, uh, and so hopefully, if you have a spare, which pretty much everybody does, uh, <laughs> you can possibly help her out. The key is to find out if you qualify. As a donor, they will uh, put you through a process. And to find out if you do, what you need to do is call this number. Craig, can you read that number with your professional broadcaster voice? Please call 206-341-1201. Repeat that for them in case they want to write it down. 206-341-1201. That's right. And what they will do is they will ask you some questions. It's completely anonymous. They will not inform Jennifer or Kevin or, for that matter, me or anybody else that you are looking into this process. But it, it will help. Not just Jennifer, potentially, but somebody else that might be in need. And so if that is a service that you can provide, as much as we joke about needing money on the podcast and wanting to generate a profit on the podcast, if I'm totally honest with you folks, don't give me a dime. Give Jennifer a kidney. All right. She's a good, good, good girl. Does that sound sexist to say good girl, even though she's a full-grown adult female? Not at all. But she's a good person, and we want to uh, keep her and keep Kevin happy for a a good many, many, many years. So if you are able to do that, if you think you might be able to do that, please give that number a call. And uh, I don't don't think we need to delay anymore. We can just move right into the interview. It's, It's Like I said, Kevin's a good guy, and I don't just say that because he's a Kevin. But he is a Kevin, so he's got to be a good guy. You gotta stick with the tribe. Here's another Kevin talking to this Kevin, and Craig will just shut up during the interview because he wasn't there for it. And yeah, I'm there in spirit. He's always here in spirit. And speaking of which, I need to grab some spirit and have a drink for the next bit. I think. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, he's not. You know, Craig's driving. He's not drinking. There you go. Here's the interview. So joining me via FaceTime is a photographer and friend whose pictures can be found all over the place for handy reference. He's compiled several of them in a handy volume available for purchase. His latest creative endeavor involves combing through ancient myths and legends to connect images to stories. Here to talk about that and, frankly, whatever else we feel like is Kevin Eby. Kevin, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on. 
Oh, glad to do it. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while now. Pretty much since I got the idea of the podcast on, I realized, okay, he does a visual medium. How can we talk about it? So we're going to find out today. Yeah, hopefully uh, we pull this off. Yeah. <laughs> if if not, then no one will ever know. So, <laughs> uh, a, a word of advice or caution for the listeners. If you hear a small crunching sound in the background, I'm actually house-sitting a dog who has decided to take this moment to start eating his kibble. See, so. I have... Cat, who uh, spends a good portion of her day in my office, but I just fed her. <laughs> he's, he's managed to eat nothing all day, but now that we've sat down to record, he's decided to start munching kibble. This is my, my announcer, Craig's dog Zeus, by the way. So he's a little white ball of fluff. So if you hear the crunching sound, it isn't static or, you know, I don't know anything else. It's just a dog. So, all right, uh, let's get going here. <laughs> trying to think of where to start with you, but, you know, of all the creative arts to me, photographers have to be passionate because the way the industry is currently structured, there's no money in it, is there? <laughs> well, and the one disappointing thing about that is that I'm not really, while some elements of this problem are new, I'm, I'm not totally sure that this is a brand new phenomenon. You know, I was uh, reading a book about the life of Ansel Adams, you know, a guy who's widely regarded as you know the best landscape photographer who's ever walked this earth. Sure. And you know, one of the, the the depressing things in this book was that he was in his late 60s, up in the middle of the night, frantically working on enough prints in order for them to be able to eat and keep the house. And, it's, and you sort of think, wow, you know, if there's a guy who has that name recognition, that body of work, you know, who's who's you know still kind of struggling that late in life after he's well established. I mean, this is a guy who had done commissions for you know the National Park Service for Kodak. Uh, you know, very well known, seemed like a very busy guy, but even he, you know, still had had trouble making a as much money as he needed to make at it. Sure, and you know, not not to talk money with you because it's you know not a not a polite subject. One have I ever been accused of being polite? But how how do you go about making a living at this? Is there some place that you know you can always go to to get a couple of bucks for a picture, or you know, what is sort of your standard practice of trying to make a living at this? There are a lot of nature photographers who who you know, try to do other things like weddings or, or corporate stuff, and that's primarily how a lot of them bring in some income. Tours are also a huge deal, uh, where you get a bunch of photography enthusiasts and the, and they pay for you to teach them, you know, in some exotic location for a week. The thing that's worked more for me was having several avenues where various images could be used. I work a lot with interior designers and decorators um, to sell prints for large commercial projects. You know, there's a um, there's a, a bank in Arizona that pretty much every bank lobby has got one of several of my Southwest images. You know, in the lobby. Very nice. Or, or hotels and 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 that kind of thing. So that's one one avenue for the work. Um, another is I do a lot of work where. Uh, you know, I was interested in science and, and, and those kind of things before I'd ever seriously picked up a camera. So a lot of the rest of my work demonstrates scientific phenomenon, which ends up getting used in books and magazines in order to help sort of illustrate stories. And in an ideal year, both parts of the business function equally well, but there are some years where you know, when we were in the Great Recession, there there weren't a lot of building construction projects, and therefore not a, a lot of need for giant pieces to hang in, in in somebody's lobby. And so then I had to to lean far more on textbooks and magazines to 
try to make a go of it. Sure. Where is the, maybe you have a story for it, maybe you don't, where's the craziest place we can find one of your photographs right now? Craziest place? Um, <laughs> so let me talk about getting this image first. Okay. There, and I know you spent a lot of time up here in the greater Seattle area. Oh, yeah. So um, before we were replacing the 520 bridge and, and building a new one over the, the top of the north end of Lake Washington, for a couple of weeks a year, there were these just gorgeous patterns, pads that you could see from the bridge deck. So if you, if you were driving from from the east side into downtown Seattle and, and you looked you know, out, out your right window as you were almost across the lake, there was this gorgeous field of blooming uh, water lilies, and there was this just perfect S pattern that of open water that flowed right in them. And I had seen this happen, uh, you know, several times, but there's, you, you can't pull over and, and take a picture on that bridge deck. So I had a good friend of mine drive the car and then pretend to break down so I could shoot from the car to <laughs> capture this phenomenon. We were almost in Seattle and created a minor little traffic jam. And I, and I, when I got the idea for the image, I always saw this as a beautiful work of art. After I captured it, it, it lived up to my expectations and saw this as just like a, a prime artistic statement, you know, a great abstract image, you know, beautiful greens and whites and a, a perfect curve through this. It ended up getting used on the cover of a digestive illness book. <laughs> and it got used there because nobody's going to buy a book when it's got a picture of a large intestine. On sure. It. But we had a curve, a natural curve, you know, through this beautiful nature scene that was vaguely reminiscent of a folded up intestine <laughs> that it might actually move more books. Now, now, did they seek you out for that, or did you seek yeah, them? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It was one of the weirdest requests I have ever gotten. <laughs> um, I've had some images on wine labels. You know, that, that I guess, is, is something that all artists would shoot for. I've, I've got a couple of murals that are up, actually, at the uh, Mount Rainier Visitor Center. Um, in, in the Sunrise Visitor Center. But, uh, yeah, the Digestive Illness book is probably the weirdest place that something has ever been. I even had a, a nature image in Cosmo Girl magazine. And I I wanted to see how it was used, but I made my wife actually go to the store and get it because I figured that if I wouldn't got a copy of that, I would have ended up on some list. Yeah, someone's going to give you a look at least, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, you devoted a good year of your life to photographing a couple of birds. Tell me about that. Uh, three years, actually. Three um, years. My mistake. <laughs> three years. Uh, I was, uh, had some free time on my hands, and uh, I, a friend of mine had told me that, you know, there are a couple of bald eagles that are, are nesting uh, right in the middle of this, city, this busy downtown city park. And it was a park where... Um, uh, a junior high or a high school had once stood, and once they cleared it out, they they left some big mounds of dirt, and I don't know why, because people primarily use this park to play uh, flag frisbee and, and stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you stand on one of these mounds, you actually had a really good look straight into this nest. And given that one of the avenues for my work is a lot of textbooks or magazines that are trying to illustrate a very specific scientific principle or animal behavior. I'd spent, you know, a little bit of time down there kind of documenting, trying to capture different behaviors of 
of these young bald eagles growing up so that that way there would be those images available to help tell various stories. And the more that I was out there, I, the, the more I just watched the nest and didn't take pictures because I was noticing that you know, there were a lot of interesting behaviors that these these birds were exhibiting, uh, you know, the, the young birds. It, it seemed like th that they weren't born uh, knowing how to fly, that it was is something that they had picked up through a variety of different techniques. It seemed like there was a lot of learning that, that they were doing uh, as they got ready to leave the nest over the course of several months. And so I probably, um, you know, spent a few hundred hours out there that first year uh, capturing various behaviors and and then decided, you know, I, I think that there's a, a really good story there. And so I went back the second year to try to cover, to, to try to fill in some of the gaps because in that first year I wasn't out there every day. And by the time that I had gotten there, you know, the, the, the young had already hatched. Yeah. Uh, and I had noticed that the behaviors that I was witnessing the second year were a bit different than what I had seen the first year. And keep in mind that bald eagles mate for life, and they use the same nest year after year. So while these birds weren't banded or tracked, you know, through electronic means, you know, all evidence indicates that these were the same parents that I'd seen the year before. And then right. you wonder, well, so if this was totally a matter of instinct, it would be as if you, you would think it's as if they were running a computer program. You know, as long as the inputs were the same, the the output in terms of their behavior <laughs> would be the same. And, it, and a lot of times it was radically different. In the first year, the, the bald eagle parents spent precious little time with the young. The young were kind of on their own to figure out flying, and they had uh, two young ones the first year. And there was one that was bad at flying, and there was one that was terrible at flying. And the one that was bad at flying could, could kind of finally left the nest and was you know, flying a few trees away in the spark, but was really bothered by the fact that its younger sibling wasn't leaving the nest at all and seemed absolutely petrified. And what I had witnessed was, it, even though at this point it was probably able to fly 50, 100 feet, it would fly only to the very next tree, and it would scream at its sibling until finally its sibling mustered the courage to, to fly over and join it in this next tree hmm. and they briefly touched wings and then the older uh, of the two young ones flew to the next tree and repeated this process so then in addition to questioning the whole the whole deal of instinct this kind of threw a whole wrench into survival of the fittest <laughs> now if, if i'm competing with my sibling for food why the heck would i help train it to fly yeah. you know why why am i you know training it's my competition and but it, it it coached you know the the younger bird and after they um you know, after both birds were able to fly a bit, about a week later, I had noticed that it was at the the, the stronger, the, the the better flyer of the two, was at the top of a tree, and it had its talons wrapped around one branch, and it was just like flapping its wings like you wouldn't believe. And I was getting pictures of it, and I thought, well, this is like the lamest bald eagle treadmill ever. You know, maybe it's trying to exercise its wings. And what it ended up doing was breaking off that branch. And then it hollered at its sibling until its sibling chased it. And they flew some circles up over the park, and then it dropped the stick, hoping that the other one, clearly hoping that the other one would catch it midair. So, you know, these, these young birds were also playing catch. <laughs> and, you know, you, you think, well, where does that come from? Yeah. And it was 
that curiosity had had really gotten me interested in this as a project. And so I had taken all my notes and I had pitched a bunch of the magazines that I'd work with. Um, and everybody was interested in the story, but nobody wanted to do it the way that I thought it needed to be done. There was a very well-known magazine that, oh, yeah, we love your pictures, but we want to do this as a travel piece to show people you know, where to see bald eagles. Right. And it's just, that's the least interesting element of this. <laughs> I mean, the two birds were playing catch for crying out sure. loud. That is your story. And um, I just couldn't get anybody to to see it the same way that I had had saw it so i went out a third year to get even more images and actually turned it into a book and uh one of the cool very rewarding things is that uh i've been invited to do a bunch of bald eagle talks you know i spent a lot of last winter up in the skagit valley um you know talking to people who had come up there in december and january to see the bald eagles that feed on the river and actually got invited back to do that again this year so it's kind of reaffirming that at least there are some people who just saw that amazing story for what it was. Yeah, it's not something, you know, I, I, I guess it has to be a photographer's eye, at least at first, that takes note of it. But then to see it from that perspective certainly is unique. Yeah, and I feel incredibly fortunate that I got to see the first flights of two or three bald eagles. And it's, you know, just is an amazing thing to see. Um, but I spent easily more than a thousand hours out there you know that wow. was that's a commitment yeah it was, it was you know a serious job every year for for uh, three summers well let's let's interrupt the photography talk for a moment because i've decided our sponsor for today's podcast is your woman uh-huh and if you need a moment to find the uh phone number that i'm going to ask you for take a moment and find the phone number but tell us a little bit about what it is she needs right now yeah my wife um is was you know blessed with a transplanted kidney 11 years ago uh which was great you know and that that changed her life you yeah. know she was you know feeling sick you know the kidney allowed her to function as as a normal person and um you know w went back to college got an electronic engineering degree um you know I certainly need a lot of help when I'm out traveling, and she's been, you know, an incredible production assistant to me on location when we go various places. In fact, once saved one of my cameras from falling between the North American and European flights. You know, that, <laughs> Good save. That is how dedicated, you know, she is to this, you know, to the mission. But unfortunately, transplanted kidneys don't last forever. And anybody who gets a transplanted kidney at some point, you know, it just wears out. And they don't totally understand why it does, but that's it's just, you know, the nature of, of that beast. And after ten and a half years, you know, the, the kidney failed. And so she's on dialysis now while we wait to find another one. And the type of dialysis that she's on requires her to be hooked up to a machine um, a little over 10 hours every night. And, you know, we've it's you know it's a huge burden and there are some days that because the you know the kidney is a really small organ but it does such an incredible job of of managing the various nutrients in your body sure. and it manages those nutrients to extremely narrow tolerances and you know we just aren't as good at doing that you know you can't you know, draw blood and you know do these tests you know right. several times a day so there are days where she feels okay and you know days where it's it's much more of a struggle so getting another kidney is 
you know, is the long-term treatment for her. The problem is, is, you know, there are more than 100,000 people in the United States who are looking for a kidney, yeah. and only you know, the, the number of kidneys that come available every year is about one-fifth of that, you know, fills about one-fifth of that need. And everybody in her family and you know, a lot of friends have been tested, and there just isn't another kidney that's available that's in our circle so we're we're trying to spread the word about you know the, the need for finding her another kidney. But if we don't find one on her own, the amount of time that she's likely going to spend on a waiting list until one is found for her is about three to four years in in Washington State. Wow. Uh, so we're trying to spread the word, and uh, you know if somebody is interested in donating. I, I can't imagine, you know, a more selfless gift that you could give somebody. Agreed. But it really, it really did turn her life around. For most people, um, you only need one kidney. In fact, there were one of her relatives who found out that they were only born with one. <laughs> um, and when you when you express interest in becoming a kidney donor, what they end up doing is they assign you your own medical team, which is completely separate from the one who treats my wife. And your medical team, their job is to find reasons for you not to donate. Um, so it, it, it's a very high threshold that you have to cross. But if, if you're one of the you know the ones that pass the you know these these tough tests, you shouldn't suffer any long-term health in, impacts. Right. And it will be a rough week in the hospital, but you know you'll you know should be back. No difference in life expectancy, you know, live a, a totally normal life for the rest of your life. And, you know, giving Jennifer a, a true life. For, and, you know, the medicine's better now than it was with her first kidney. And, and the doctors are now telling us that, you know, if we find the right kidney and with the advances in medicine since the last time that she got one, you know, she could have another 20, 25 year run. Wow. Uh, which would be absolutely incredible. So assuming I have listeners that are able to help, what can we do? She is at um, Virginia Mason Hospital in Seattle, and they have a kidney information line, okay. which is 206-341-1201. And if you express interest, express interest in her name, which is Jennifer Owen. All right, so we got 206-341-1201. And what's the name of the hospital that's helping her out? It's Virginia Mason. Virginia Mason. And her name's Jennifer Owen. All right. Well, again, for those of you listening at home, I've, I've met Jennifer a couple of times. She's got a really quirky sense of humor. She does seem to like a guy named Kevin, which is always good. Mm-hmm. We need more. We need more women in the world who like guys named Kevin. The very small, small, uh, small pool. That's what I'm saying. So, if you are able to help out, if you're not sure, you know, as, as Kevin Eby here said, it's it's a selfless act on somebody's part that makes these things happen. You know. Having to sit on a wait list, I can't even imagine. And like you said, having days that are up and days that are down and really no way to predict that. You know, she deserves a better life than that. So hopefully somebody can help her out with that. Yeah. So, yes, she is our official sponsor. You can let her know. <laughs> All right. You'll appreciate that. Very good. Both well. So back to the world of photography, I mentioned at the top here, you are doing a book or you know, kind of in the process and have been posting a lot of stuff on social media where you've been researching a lot of different myths, legends, things like that, and then sort of tying them into a photograph or a series of photographs that you have. Which is, which is coming first, the photographs or the stories? Um, the stories always have to come first. Uh, this is a, a, the idea behind this project is that 
before there were scientific explanations for what it was that we were seeing, there were very imaginative stories that were passed down for generation, passed down from generation to generation to generation. And you know, there are tons and tons of books of legends. You know, a lot of these were published in a, a journal for, that was done by the Bureau of Indian Affairs for a long time. What I wanted to do, though, was kind of bring those stories even more to life by creating contemporary nature photography that looked like it was captured on the day the legend began. And this project was always going to be my first book. I've had this <laughs> idea now for about 10 years. And how many and, books have you done in between your first book? <laughs> I, I don't even think this is going to be my fifth book. <laughs> next. And the problem was, was that I, I absolutely love this idea. And I, I loved it from the moment that I, I came up with it. The problem is that it is incredibly difficult and expensive to execute. Um, the first legend that I, that I was going to do for this project is a legend about Face Rock, which is this uh, sea stack that's off the southern Oregon coast. And from certain angles, it looks just like a woman's face hmm. that is coming out of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, my wife and I were down on the southern Oregon coast doing some photography. We stayed in an inn, and it was an inn that was near Face Rock. And when I was down there, you know, the placemats, the, the walls, I mean, every, all over the place, you know, is the legend of, of this space. And the story talks about how this was a chief's beautiful daughter who uh, who had a very strong independent spirit and even though everybody had told her not to go down to the ocean at night it wasn't safe she did anyway there was this sea monster that did, had come out and kind of pulled her in and what she ended up doing was fixing her gaze on the bright full moon and that turned her into the stone but also protected her you know, by glancing at the full moon, that's what protected her from this evil spirit. So I thought, perfect. You know, you, you have a face rock. You just need to come out here on a morning where the moon is in the right spot of the sky. Right. We have the technology to figure that out. You know, <laughs> yeah, how hard could this be? And and so I, I, you know, grabbed my topographical maps, grabbed my moon charts, and it figured out, you know, a day when all these conditions were going to line up and, and work. So it is how I couldn't even tell you how many miles it is from my house down there. It's probably 500 miles from my house to, to this location. And so it, you know, it was the day when the moon was going to be in the right spot. It looked like the weather forecast was clear. So I start heading down there at 11 o'clock the, the night, and just drive straight down all the way through. And it is the Oregon coast. And for people who, who aren't familiar with the area, the weather is rather unpredictable and it's miserable <laughs> a lot of time. A lot of cold, a lot of fog. Uh, and, and, and fog is terrible for nature photography. You can't <laughs> see the face or the moon. Yeah. And so I thought, shoot, you know, we've, we've lost the opportunity to do it for this year after I'd already driven the 500 miles and then you have to drive another 500 back. So um, a couple of years had passed, and it looked like the conditions were going to be right again. So I make the trek down there, and again, it's just terrible weather that wasn't forecast. It was foggier than it was supposed to be, and it took three or four tries. And you, 
you then add up the gas bill and the overnight <laughs> in the hotel, and it, I, um, it just looked like there were some legends that are really easy to illustrate, but there were a lot that, you know, aren't. And it's through no fault of anybody. It's just you, you get what you get. And a lot of my photography, I have a plan for what I hope to get on location, but I'm also really open to the serendipity of things. And if the weather is different or I'm inspired in a different way, I will totally change my approach and, you know, come up with a, an image that, you know, wasn't a plan. And this isn't a project where you can do that. Yeah. It was just it was just a matter of, so do I really water down then the quality of of the art and you know we do images that you know that are less true to this vision or you know don't illustrate it as much or you know do I kind of chip away at it over the course of time and you know, it, you know nobody was going to give me a half million dollars to you know to to do to illustrate fifty sixty seventy legends you know it's probably what I would end up needing to illustrate in order to turn this into a book. Right. Um, so it, it is something that I've been working on for 10 years, but, you know, honestly haven't been making a ton of progress at it. <laughs> so what had happened this year is I, I think every artist, when you're, you're working on, on something for a while, you kind of get into a rut. And I, th in, in, especially in, in my area, I think the more that you know about something, the less you see, yeah, I, I use this analogy a lot, you know, explaining in terms of school. I think the longer that you're in school, some people just have a tendency to, when you're asked a question, to reach into the recess of your mind and regurgitate what you know the correct answer to be without really thinking about it. Yeah. And, um, and especially with my photography where, you know, one of the key avenues for my work is illustrating scientific principles, you know, I, I – was getting into a habit where you see a bald eagle and think, well, that's kleptoparasitic behavior. And you, you frame it in a certain way and you get the shot and it nature for me didn't have the same magic as it did when I was starting out. And it, it clearly was a rot. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't as happy with the work that I was producing. And, you know, this, this happens to other artists, you know, it's happened to me before, but when it happens, I, I give myself an unusual assignment to kind of break myself out of that <laughs> funk. And I thought, you know, I've loved this idea forever. Uh, um, I, you know, let's go ahead and, and start chipping away more at, at some of those legends. And so I've been doing a legend a month on the blog through my website. Uh, I, I would love to one day get enough legends to actually turn it into a book. But for right now, it's, it's certainly fun to, share both the image and the native story that inspired that image, you know, through the blog once a month. And even if no book ever comes out of it, it's reignited my creative spark. And I feel like I'm, I'm producing work as creatively as I've ever done. I mean, it, it certainly filled that, that purpose in my life, which is all, you know, at this point, that's, that's all I was open for. Yeah. And, you know, for someone like me, I've, I've joked you know, before publicly and privately, when I was in school, the you know two things that really bored the crap out of me were both science and history. And as an adult, the two things that interest me most are science and history. You know, it was one of those things where when you forced me to look at it, I wanted nothing to do with it. 
but now that you know I've got the spare time, that seems to be where where my interests lie. And seeing your posts from time to time when they pop up, it's kind of neat. You know, mythology, like I said, it's something that I did not really have an interest in as a kid, but now I tend to, you know, I, I have my beat-up copy of Joseph Campbell's Power of Myth, and I read that at least once a year and, you know, highlight different passages every time. And so to see those things is, you know, that, that it's kind of cool to me. Where can uh, people find those? What's your web address? It's livingwilderness.com. And uh, there's a link at the bottom of the homepage that you will arrive on that, that lets you check out the Living Wilderness blog. And that's where I've been posting the stories. Cool. It, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's also some social media links there. And, you know, they'll pop up at that place as well. But the blog is, is the place where right now they're, they're all collected. But, you know, I had the same experience as you did. When I was going up through school, I hated art and physical education. <laughs> and now I hike to make art. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how life works out sometimes, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's karma. Yeah, but now see, now did you get we, we you know for the, again for those who don't know our past, we both went to Pacific Lutheran University. Did you get a communications degree from there as well, or something else? Yeah, uh, communications and economics. Economics. Okay, so you got something useful. Well, I mean, I'm <laughs> out watching birds. Nest. Yeah. No. Hey, welcome to my world. That's. Uh... <laughs> I, you know, for you know, for those again who do not know, I keep saying that a lot, but we've you know, there in in lovely news of Pacific Lutheran University these last couple of weeks, the news hasn't been good for our uh, alma mater. The uh, credit rating dropped, the enrollments down, and everybody now hates the school because they're selling one of the biggest public radio stations in the country. <laughs> and that was the place where I'd worked when I was a student there. Yeah, I, almost everybody I know who is a communications major has some sort of connection to that place. So. And the thing that I loved about that school and the communications department was uh, I think that we got a really good education in storytelling. And I think, you know, especially with the, you know, the professor you know, that I had and still keep in contact with, the experience that I had, you know, through KPLU, you, you learn the elements of, of telling a good story. And those elements serve you well, whether you're on the radio, whether you're going out and creating photos, whether you're, you're writing magazine articles. You know, a, a lot of the essence of, of what's good art, what's good storytelling um, is, is the same. And I, I owe a lot of where I am now to the education that I had back then. And it's just, you know, as, as you and I both agree, it's really disappointing to kind of see that past discarded so easily. Yeah, and I, you know, I have emailed the new president of the university like you know you know my first year at PLU was the first year of president anderson and he just left last year a year or so ago and so i i actually had a fairly decent you know email correspondent you know relationship with with lauren anderson over the years you know if something would come up at the university i could write him and he'd reply back and you know he you know, at the end of the day, he's the president of a university. You can't always, you know, be as diplomatic as you want to be, or you have to be more diplomatic sometimes. But, you know, I, I always felt like I was listened to with him. And with the current president, I think his name is Christ or Kreis. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm I'm not getting that vibe. He seems yeah. to have very little interest. You know, they, they always say, oh, well, yo, here's the meeting for input. But they seem to have already made the decision, which is frustrating to me. And as you said, you know, with your education, my education at, at PLU, I feel like I got a very good education. Like, you know, I benefited from the professors that I had. You know, Cliff Rao, probably one of the best journalism teachers out there. Um, you know, decent broadcasting teachers as well. Not so much our broadcast journalism teacher at the time, but she's not there anymore. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's one of those things where I have to really work hard to convince people 
that I got a good education outside of the Parkland, Spanaway, Tacoma zip codes. And KPLU was a way that I could do that because people have heard of KPLU all across the country. You know, they produce content that airs all across the country. And for PLU to just discard that to me is just, it's, it's a smack in the face to people with communications degrees, with alumni, and, you know, their, their claims that it somehow serves the community to consolidate media. I've never seen an instance in my life where a media consolidation serves a community. So that's my frustration with it all. Right, and we're seeing consolidation more and more. You know, the National Geographic's, you know, selling the, the flagship magazine. Yeah. You know, to the Rupert Murdoch Corporation, you know, and they've already gotten rid of a lot of the long-standing editors. You know, a couple of photographers who, who've been there for 20, 30 years, and doing clearly, you know, groundbreaking work. Um, you know, it, it's just it's a really frustrating time to be somebody who does creative work because there are fewer and fewer outlets for that work all the time, and. Uh, even the places you know where you do get to produce that work, um, you know they they devote less space to it. Right. And it's just really disappointing to see that you know happen at a university where you sort of think that you know this is a special place that isn't just corporate America, and, but then you realize it's run just like a bank. Yep. At, at least with the current administration. Now I would like for them to prove us wrong. You know, apparently we still have until the middle of December for them to officially, whatever, hit up the FCC for the sale and go through all of that paperwork and processing. So maybe they can prove us wrong. It would be nice. One can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to give out the number one more time. It is 206-341-1201. And again, the patient in question is Jennifer Owen. If I remember right from your Facebook post, people can do this anonymously. Yeah, they they will not even tell us if anybody called. It's not even a matter of telling us who called. They won't even tell us if anybody has called. Um, so the only way that I would ever know is if you had told us. And, you know, if you do have questions or, you know, you feel free to email me through my livingwilderness.com website. Um, you know, there's a contact information there, and I'm, help, I'm glad to share any information that I can. Um, but yeah, you can do this totally anonymously. They don't tell us, um, you, you know, if you d want to donate and for some reason you're not cleared, they won't, you know, tell us why they won't even tell us that you, you know, tried. So, uh, you know, you, you are safe in that regard. You know, you, you don't have to worry about anybody finding out, you know, unless you want to share that information yourself. Right. And it just, I wish more people would do it, um, you know, I've got a couple of friends that have talked about similar things down the road. It's just nice to see people help each other out. You know, I, this this podcast doesn't get into politics. This podcast doesn't delve into those sorts of things because I try to keep it, you know, well, keep politics away from things. I don't want it to be a divisive podcast in any way, shape, or form. But if you look at the political climate out there right now, whichever side you happen to align with, you know, it, it isn't the government that's going to cure our problems. It's the community. So I'm hoping that, you know, with a little community support, we can get Jennifer some help. We can make a fellow Kevin happy. And uh, you guys can be out taking pictures for, like you said, 20, 25, 30 years without any problems. So Yeah, and I, I need somebody to, you know, prevent my camera from falling <laughs> in. <laughs> hey, look, if there's one thing I know in my years, it's that all Kevins need somebody. <laughs> yes. She is the only person who can really put up with me and seems to embrace whatever it is that I do. 
There we go. So hopefully we can help her out. Do you do much digital manipulation of your photographs? You do pretty much let the picture itself speak for itself. I don't do a lot, but I do believe in some adjustments. You know, the fact of the matter is, is the camera sees the world differently than your eye does. And, uh, you know, the, the straight out of the camera output isn't really faithful to the natural scene either. And I, I believe in using some, you know, minor adjustments to make the image, you know, more re accurately reflect, reflect what it felt like when I was there, what the scene meant to me. Um, I know that there are some purists who believe that you shouldn't do anything to anything. Um, and there are some people who go incredibly far off the deep end, you know, off into the realm that I really think of as digital art. And I, I believe in moderation. Well, I think we've touched on pretty much everything. We actually talked again about visual arts in a non-visual medium. So how do you think it went? Did we do okay? I think it went well. <laughs> I get some sort of an achievement award for this. I, I think we should. So, uh, but, but, but I thank you for taking the afternoon to uh, hang out with me here via FaceTime. And uh, hopefully next time you're down this way with uh, you and with hopefully a new kidney in tow, your wife, we can hang out again. I look forward to it. Well, thank you very much for joining me, and you have a good rest of the day, sir. You too. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. It's time once again for our shameless pandering to hipsters and audiophiles alike. Here's Kevin with today's Vinyl Fetish. All right, it is time once again for our Vinyl Fetish segment. Uh, before we do that, I do want to thank Kevin Eby for that interview. I thought it was interesting stuff. Again, I'm, I'm not a photographer by trade. It is not my profession. I've never made a thin dime by doing it, but it has always fascinated me, and I've got a lot of friends who are into photography, so hopefully this was an interesting podcast episode for them. And again, if you have any interest, any desire, any impetus, is impetus the right word? If not, I'll edit it out in post. To, to help out uh, uh, Miss Jennifer Owen, please give that number a call. Once again, it is 206-341-1201. Our vinyl fetish segment of today is next week's guest, the comedian Jonathan Katz. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, you got to tune into the interview because I've, I've never experienced anything like that in my brief podcasting tenure. Um, and I don't expect to experience anything like that it ever again. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, I do own uh, some vinyl, but I mostly listen to music electronically. And most of it is... I, I use Pandora a lot. Sure. I'm not getting paid to say that. <laughs> I'm not getting paid to say that's anything. Too bad. That yeah, I, neither of us are. There's something wrong with the system. Yeah, but uh, I'm just trying to see what's if I play Pandora. What's on my? I don't know. Were you ever into Tom Petty? Oh sure. Oh sure. Well, if I listen to Van Morrison radio mm -hmm. on Pandora, the first thing that comes up is a song by Tom Petty. Let's see what the next song is. This is The Forest by Van Morrison. I don't know either of those songs. Oh, here we go. This is one I know. All the trees will fall. <laughs> this is uh, Before Your Time. No, that's Mamas and the Papas. I know that one. Sorry about that. 
Oh, that's okay. Good old Mama Cass. May she rest in peace. She's another one of those dead people we need to take care of. Mama Cass? Yeah. Yeah, I never understood that lyric where it says, everybody's getting fat except Mama Cass. I guess it was maybe irony or something like that. That that could be. Or maybe she'd, I don't know, maybe she'd peaked. She was a great singer. Yeah, she had a dynamite voice. Yeah. By by all accounts, her stage presence again. I, I I never saw her live aside from a couple. Which I think I've seen the clip of her on the Ed Sullivan show, the Mamas and the Papas. But I'm told mm-hmm. she was just a, you know, despite her weight and any other problems she had, was a very dynamic performer. Yeah, I, I when I worked in L.A., I rented, uh, which was stupid because I thought I was never going to have to work again. I rented the Dan Aykroyd compound. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, and. Apparently, she built a home on that compound many years ago. Huh. I don't think I should live anywhere that has the word compound. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a good rule of thumb. Compounds or camp is another thing to avoid a house at. Yeah. Um, hey, did you go to summer camp as a kid? All right, and that's going to do it for today's installment of the podcast. I want to thank Kevin Eby one more time. I want to thank Jonathan Katz, who will be next week's guest. I want to encourage you all to telephone 206-341-1201 and try to help Jennifer Owen out. She's a lady, and, and I, want to, I want her to come back down here so we can go and attend another TV show taping and, and, and heckle the warm-up guy, frankly. That's what we, we did best. Tune in next week for the full Jonathan Katz interview in all its splendor. Until then, get off my lawn. This has been the Get Off My Lawn Podcast. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Get Off My Lawn Pod. Check out our SoundCloud at Get Off My Lawn Podcast or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes. Questions or comments? To suggest a guest or to offer us fat wads of cash in exchange for promotional consideration, Our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. The theme was composed and performed by Brian Weideman. Check out his music at www.worldbride.com. That's W-O-R-L-D-B-R-I.com. The logo was designed by Julie Contreras at Urban Bird Design. Go to urbanbirddesign.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend.